Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ben Renfro. And we are excited to be in the studio with you again. Ben hasn't been on the show with me for a few years now, maybe five years, but he's one of our co-workers here at the Great Commission Alliance. So he has done the show before, and I'm excited to have him back in the studio again today. We're going to be talking about something kind of interesting, and these are creedal statements in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard that there are various creedal statements in the New Testament that can tell us a whole lot. And those statements probably were circulated in the church prior to the New Testament even being written. We see those numerous times coming up. Sometimes they're introduced as a statement or a saying, like Paul tells that to Timothy many times. This is a trustworthy saying. And then he goes on to share a saying. Or maybe 1 Corinthians 15, I'll address that in a minute. But Paul gives a description of the resurrection and the evidence for the gospel and the resurrection, but he says it in almost song form, and he says that he had received that from someone else. And so a lot of these statements actually are very strong apologetical evidence for the rest of what we see in Scripture. They corroborate the truth of Scripture and the claims of Scripture. Recently, we had Dr. Habermas here at our Engage Apologetics Conference And Dr. Habermas mentioned these, specifically talking about that 1 Corinthians 15 statement. Someone asked about other statements in Scripture, and he referred them to countless others, many others, uh, anywhere from 40 to maybe even 100 other statements. Well, today we're going to go through some of those, and we're not going to bore you by reading every single one of them, but we're going to look at about 20 different categories of these creedal statements. Now, I got to let you know, not all of these are guaranteed creedal statements. Scholars uh, wonder whether some of these might be, and they believe that many of these are, but I don't think there's any conclusive list. This list is a compilation of a couple lists. First, many of these references come from the Dictionary of New Testament Background, a compendium of contemporary biblical scholarship that was edited by Craig Evans, who also was involved at our Engage conference, and Stanley E. Porter Jr. Many of these creedal statements also come from the creeds of Christendom, the Greek and Latin creeds with translations by Philip Schaff. There are some other sources I threw in as well. Again, this is not a complete or conclusive list, and I can't promise you that everything on here is a legitimate creedal statement. But these are statements that many scholars believe were creedal statements that were circulated by memory throughout the local church from its earliest years, and that the writers of the New Testament included with the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit when they penned the text of the Bible. We're going to look at a lot of these today. It's going to be exciting, and I hope that you're uh, ready to hear some really, really great stuff. I wanted to look first at that famous one. I've mentioned it a few times. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, this statement that he's about to share, he passed on 
but he also received it. And now he's putting it in scripture. And here's the statement that had been circulating in the church, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That statement was written in a memorizable way, kind of like a Jack and Jill ran up the hill kind of pattern that people could easily remember. And it was written so that Christians everywhere could remember this fundamental truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as prophesied. So this was an incredible statement, and we can actually date this statement. At the Engage conference, Habermas walked us through some math. For example, in Galatians 1, 18 and 2, 1, we read a timeline for when Paul went up to Jerusalem to confirm this statement with the leaders in Jerusalem. And we find that that was about 17 years after he became a Christian. So when he became a Christian, is probably likely when he heard this statement as a young believer who had newly come to faith in Christ. So about 17 years later, he goes up to Jerusalem, and after that time, he writes this letter to the Galatians where he references the timeline of when he corroborated this gospel message with the leaders in Jerusalem. If Galatians was written in the early 50s, Paul would have had to have come to Christ somewhere in the early part of the 30s, which really, I'm not going to go into all the details that Habermas shared, but this pinpoints him receiving this, this passage or this uh, creed in the early part of the 30s. A lot of scholars would even date it to the very year that Jesus was crucified and resurrected again. And even very liberal secular scholars wouldn't date it more than a year or maybe two at the most after the resurrection. What's fantastic about it is we have corroboration of the resurrection being transmitted throughout many, many groups of believers from the earliest days, which means that this couldn't have been something that evolved over time. That's just one example of a creedal statement found in Scripture that has apologetical significance. There are many, many others. And again, this is one of Habermas's minimal facts, the early testimony of the resurrection. But again, there are many other creedal statements. I guess uh, another one is in 1 Timothy. Yes, yeah, so in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, it says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Great example where Paul begins this passage saying, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He's reminding Timothy of a saying that Christians had been circulating, and he's saying this is true and accept it. Don't reject it. There are many other statements like this, and here's what's fascinating. These statements probably circulated in the early church as like the earliest form of a systematic theology, basically the earliest form of Christian discipleship. What do we as Christians believe? 
And when the New Testament was penned, you know, 20 years after Christ or something like that beginning to be penned, these statements were included by the Holy Spirit's direction in the New Testament. But what we find with a lot of these statements is most of the key doctrines of Christianity were addressed in these creedal statements. So let's jump right into it and look at some of these different categories of statements and uh, what they tell us about the gospel. Well, first we see the nature and character of God. There are numerous supposed creeds that deal with the nature and character of God. You can't get more fundamental than that. Romans 11:33 through 36, 16:25 through 27, 1 Corinthians 8:6, 2 Corinthians 1:3 through 4, 1 Timothy 3:16, 6:15 through 16, James 2:19 and 4:12. Jude verses 24 through 25, Revelation 1, 4 through 8, 4, 8 through 11, 5, 9 through 13, 7, 10 through 12, 11, 15 through 18, 15, 3 through 4, 16, 5 through 7, 19, 1 through 3, and also verses 5 through 8. All those are possible creedal statements that tell us a lot about the nature and character of God. If you're listening right now and you're thinking, there's no way I can remember all those statements Nate just said, you're right, you can't. So go to godsolutionshow.com, and under our past shows tab, you'll find this show. I'm going to link this PDF there so that you can see all these statements as well, so that you don't have to remember them all right now. The point being, there are a whole bunch of creedal statements that tell us a lot about the nature and character of God. Another topic that we find a lot of scripture uh, talking about when it comes to creedal statements is Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, and the Holy Son of God. This is really important, especially for skeptics nowadays that say that the early church didn't really believe that Jesus was God, knowing that these statements can be dated back to the early church, knowing that they originally felt and thought that Jesus was not only God's son, but he was the Messiah and the Christ. So some verses off of that are Matthew 16, 16, Mark 8, 29, John 1:49 and 6:68 through 69, Acts 4:24 through 30, Acts 5:42, Romans 1, 3 through 4, 1 John 2:22, and 5:1. Another topic that is related to Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy Son of God is the fact that Jesus is Lord and God. And I'll share in a minute, but when they said Lord, they meant God. So let's jump into that. Different passages, creedal statements that deal with the deity of Christ include John 1, 1 through 16, numerous in there. John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Colossians 1, 12 through 20. 2, 8 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. And Hebrews 1, 3. All those talk about the deity of Christ. This was a position that was held by the early church. When we hear Ehrman writing books like How Jesus Became God, he believes that the deity of Christ was something that only came to be believed towards the end of the first century or even the beginning of the second century and only based on the heresy of Paul. He believes that many different Christian sects were all competing And it was only the Christian sect that believed in the deity of Christ that won out over the others. 
all of this is nonsense. When we read Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, about the deity of Christ being something that was widely debated, nonsense. The Christians from the earliest times believed that Jesus was God. Mark, the earliest writer in the New Testament, in the second chapter of his, of his gospel, says that Jesus is God in very clear terms. He calls him the Lord of the Sabbath, obviously a clear reference to deity. And Jesus himself claims that he has power to forgive sins in that chapter, obviously something that he and the Pharisees knew only God could do. They believed that he was blasphemous for saying that he had the power to forgive sins. Anyway, Jesus is God. I wanted to take a few minutes and reference some some passages that tell us that Jesus is God while we're on this topic. There are clear passages to the deity of Christ. Matthew 1.23 calls Jesus God with us. John 1.1 calls him God. John 8.58, we see Jesus referring to himself as God. In John 20.28, 20, we see Thomas calling Jesus God. In Acts 20.28, 20, we see that God bought the church with his own blood. And in Philippians 2.6, we see that Jesus was by very nature God. We also see supporting passages that tell us indirectly that Jesus is God, like the two passages in Mark 2 that I mentioned. He has power to forgive sins, and he's the Lord of the Sabbath. There are also prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us Jesus is God. In Zechariah 11, Yahweh God says that the people valued him with 30 pieces of silver, exactly what Jesus was betrayed for in the New Testament. And in the very next chapter, Zechariah 12, Yahweh God says they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for me. Exactly what happened to Jesus, pierced for our transgressions when he was hung on that cross. We also see that Jesus was the God class. In the Roman Empire, the class that you were born into was your class, and that was determined by your family. So if I said, I'm the son of so-and-so, that meant I was the class that that person was in. So if I said, I'm the son of God, that meant to them, I am in the God class. We know this is true because in John 5, 18, Jesus calls himself God's son, and they say, because of that, he's claiming to be equal with God, and they try to kill him for it. We see in Scripture that Jesus and God share various different attributes, both Isaiah 40, 28, and Colossians 1, 16 through 18 talk about creation. Isaiah says that Yahweh God is creator. Colossians 1 says Jesus is. Of course, John 1 does too. Isaiah says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess to Yahweh God. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says the same thing about Jesus. So we see these shared attributes. We also see Jesus referring to himself more than any other way as the Son of Man which in Daniel 7 we read is the worshipped judge of the earth with eternal dominion. When Jesus called himself this before Caiaphas, Caiaphas understood calling it blasphemy and ripping his shirt. The Greek word Lord, I mentioned this a minute ago, is, tra- is used to translate Yahweh every time New Testament writers translate Yahweh into a New Testament passage when they're quoting Old Testament scripture. That same word is applied to Jesus more than 500 times. An example of this in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, it says, Blessed is him whose sin the Lord Yahweh God does not count against him. In Romans 4, 7 through 8, Paul quotes Psalm 32, 1 through 2, and he says, Blessed is the man whose sin kudios Lord does not 
hold against him. So he uses kurios to translate Yahweh. Then six chapters later, he says that you cannot be saved unless you call Jesus kurios. In other words, unless you see Jesus as Yahweh God, you cannot be saved. Incredible. So the Trinity is complicated, but it's not incoherent. In Genesis 1.26, we see God saying, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness. And in Matthew 28.19, we see this illustration of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just like the room that you're sitting in now, it is one room, but it has height, length, width, three distinct parts, one room. We would never say that's incoherent. It's very, very coherent, and it's exactly what we see in the Trinity. But the point I want to make here is the creedal statements about the deity of Christ show us that this is something that early believers believed right from the start, that he really was God. What's awesome is going back to a lot of the things you'll hear skeptics talking about today. Uh, We hear it a lot on campus when we're talking to college students is that Jesus never died, um, but then especially refuting the resurrection and saying that never happened, knowing going back to that 1 Corinthians 15 verse that that was something that the early church believed right away. We also see in Romans 1-4 that as well. But back to that 1 Corinthians 1, what's really awesome is we can date that back to around A.D. 33. And so we know that that is something that the early church had within a year or two of Jesus' death. And even most skeptics would date it to at latest like A.D. 35 or something like that. So it's awesome to know that all these issues we're dealing with in the terms of apologetics here today in our society are stuff that we have in Scripture dealing with all of these different issues of did the church actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Did they believe that Jesus really died in the first place? We also see in 2 Timothy 2.8 that same kind of thing, talking about Jesus' death and resurrection is something the church agreed upon right from the beginning. A very short reference to Satan's impending demise is in Revelation 12.10-12, another statement that clarifies a truth of Scripture that Satan is not the all-powerful one. Jesus is, and Satan will be destroyed at some future date. Another lie that we hear a lot in the world today is that man is inherently good, but Scripture tells us, and we believe this as Christians, that man is ultimately depraved. So the depravity of man is something that we see in Scripture. We see creedal statements in Romans 3, 13 through 18, and Ephesians 5, 14. God's salvation, favor, and blessing. We see statements about that in Luke 2, 14. 229 through 32 and 2 Corinthians 13 13 through 14 and maybe one of the most important things we have in all of scripture is this idea of salvation by grace and through faith in Jesus this is a term that we use a lot in churches today uh, not only in the United States but around the world is this idea of salvation is by faith through grace uh, but this is something that the early church believed and we have a lot of references for this one we have Acts 10:36 11:20 16:31 then we have Romans 3, 24 through 26, 9 33, 10, 9 through 10, 16, 25 through 27, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 2, 12 through 19, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, 2, 11 through 13. Titus 3, 4 through 7, Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, 18 through 21, 3, 18 through 22, 1 John 4, 10, 15, 5, 1, 5, 5, Revelations 1, 4 through 8, and 22, 17. 
So isn't this amazing that all the way from the get-go, the gospel that we still preach today as Christians, this idea that God loves us so much, but that ultimately man is depraved and sinful, and that we are separated from God, but that Jesus came down on the cross and was able to bridge that separation in a way that we never could on our own, but ultimately we have a response, like Nate said earlier, referring to Jesus as Lord. We have to make Jesus as Lord of our life, and this is something that we see all the way back in the early church. So it's awesome to know that the gospel that we have today is the same gospel that they had all the way back in A.D. 33. A couple likely creedal statements refer to baptism, Matthew 28, 19, and Acts 8, 36 through 37, both refer to baptism. And then talking about communion or the Lord's Supper, we have 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Grace over legalism in Acts fifteen twenty nine. And love and unity in the Lord, we have 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 4, and Ephesians 4, 4 through 10. Growing in Christ's likeness, obviously a goal of the Christian life and Christ in us, producing what only he can through us. Different creedal statements refer to this concept. 1 Timothy 4, 8 through 9, 6, 12, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, and 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. And then talking about the greatest commandments, we have Mark 12, 29 through 31. This comes straight from Jesus, and obviously the early church took what Jesus said and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it. They did not lose that. They, they took to heart what Jesus said, obviously also uh, quoted in Luke. Okay, the Great Commission and the ministry that believers are called to, the ministry of evangelism, discipleship, and winning the world for Christ. Different creedal statements refer to this as well. Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, and Revelation 1, 4 through 8 are all possible statements that refer to this. And what's really awesome, uh, I talk a lot about early church history and things like that. We see this idea of the Great Commission and how we're supposed to share faith and disciple believers. This isn't a new concept. We see that all the way back in Scripture. And what's awesome is the early church really got that. They really took hold of this idea of multiplicative discipleship. And we see that in the first 200, 300 years of church history, almost an entire third of the world's population is converted to Christianity. That's about what we're at today. And it's awesome to know that churches today are turning back towards this idea of discipleship and evangelism more and more, looking at the early church and how they did things. And that's how we have so many examples of the Great Commission and the ministry that we're called to as Christians. Another category that we have is the importance of faithful leadership. This is really important. We have 1 Timothy 3.1 and 6.20 and then Titus 1-9. through 9. Staying strong in the truth right in line with that is also absolutely critical Obviously, false teachers were uh, harassing the early church, and we see different creedal statements that dealt with the importance of standing strong on the truth. 2 Timothy 1, 13-14, a big one, 3.16, and Titus 1, 9 all refer to that. The danger of deception tied closely along with the truth. A lot of what we have as far as early scripture, a lot of the epistles that Paul writes deals with differences in what churches are thinking as far as theology and things like that. And we have even today still a lot of different ideas within theology of the Christian faith, but even things outside of what we would consider the Christian faith that claim to love Jesus or claim to love scripture, but are completely outside of that. So we have the danger of deception clearly laid out in scripture from the start in 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15, 
Colossians 2, 8 through 15, Titus 1, 9, and Hebrews 13, 9. Right from the start, early believers were encouraging each other to persevere through hardship, through trial, through persecution, through all these different things. We see several different statements that deal with that. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Hebrews 10, 23, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, 1 John 5, 5, and Revelation 14, 13 all discuss persevering through adversity and things like that. Also going back to when we were talking about the gospel and how that's laid out clearly, tied in with the gospel is the thought that God wants us to be with him in heaven. And this idea of heaven, it's not a new concept. It's not something that the church has invented anytime new. We see a lot of scripture talking about it, and we have almost an entire book of scripture dedicated to this idea of heaven and knowing that this is something that we have not invented recently in church history, but is something that we have all the way going back to the early church. In Revelations, we have 4, 8 through 11 talking about heaven. We also have 5, 9 through 13, and 11, 15 through 18. So we just referenced almost 100 possible creedal statements. Again, we're not sure that all of these are creedal statements, but many have been proposed as possible creedal statements by different scholars. I encourage you again to go back to the, the Dictionary of New Testament Background by Craig Evans and Stanley Porter and the Creeds of Christendom by Philip Schaff. Both those will reference many of these and others. But the bottom line here is that most of the fundamentals of Christian doctrine were things that the early church was already telling each other in the form of these memorizable creeds and statements right from the start. And thankfully, many of these were included and expounded on in the New Testament by the writers through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some of the topics that we discuss today are the nature and character of God, Jesus and his identity as the Messiah, the Christ, and the Holy Son of God, Jesus, who in essence is God, We talked about some of the statements that corroborated his death and resurrection right from the earliest, earliest possible date about Satan's demise, the depravity of man, God's salvation, favor, and blessing, salvation by grace and through faith in Jesus, baptism, communion, grace over legalism, love and unity in the Lord, growing in Christ-likeness, the greatest commandments, the great commission, and the ministry that God has called all believers to, the importance of faithful leadership, staying strong in the truth, avoiding and, and making sure to, to steer clear of and correct deception, persevering through adversity, and all of this with the expectation of heaven lying ahead of us. That's a pretty good summary of systematic theology. If, if you wondered whether the early church was just hodgepodging things together as they went, you can rest assured the fundamentals of, of basic systematic theology today were right there from the very start and expounded in the New Testament as God inspired the writers to write. Well, and ultimately, when you think of what we have today and all of this rich history dating back 2,000 years If you take all of that aside and say we don't have any of that, all we have is scripture. If we just look at the references that we listed off today, what a deep theology we can gain just from this, of the creedal statements of the early church. If we don't even have the writings of all the amazing authors that have brought us over the last 2,000 years talking about deeper levels of theology, great authors like C.S. Lewis and things like that, if we just have these statements in scripture, man, we have so much 
theology to base ourselves off of, to base church off of, and ultimately of how we live our lives and the importance of growing in relationship with Christ. We have all of that just in these scriptures. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, I encourage you to take that step today. As we wrap up, I want to remind you that you can believe in Jesus today and be saved. And you could verbalize that to him in prayer right now, saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life and eternal life. Today I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible is very clear that if you believe in him as Savior and Lord, you will be saved. So if you took that step today, welcome to the family. You are now a believer and you can look forward to an eternity with God in heaven and a life of meaning and purpose with him on this earth. Now if you already are a believer, I hope that what we shared with you today gives you confidence that what you believe is really true, and this is what Christians have believed from the very beginning of our faith, right from the start. Now today you have the incredible privilege of sharing this with those around you. There are people all around you that need to hear the good news, and you can share the good news with them in evangelism, and hopefully you can use what you're learning on this show to defend your faith when objections come up. I encourage you to go to godsolutionshow.com. Let us know what you think about the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about on the show. Listen to some past shows and get equipped to defend your faith in evangelism and discipleship. Pat Hansen, if you're out there, we hear you're a big fan of the show, and we just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Well, anyway, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part.